0: Let's uh, read our scripture reading together from Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. It's a a short passage, so we're going to read this together aloud from the board. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Let's go to the Lord and ask his help in his word this morning. Our Father, we certainly are once again reminded and thankful that you have accomplished so much on our behalf. And Lord, in the symbolic supper that we will partake of later on, may we be reminded once again of the fullness of your salvation, the greatness of your love, the completeness of your mercy, the extent of your grace toward us. But Father, that grace is not to be used as an opportunity for the flesh, as we are so often accused of teaching. So, Father, this morning, as we look into these three short verses that are so packed with significance, I know in the time we have, I cannot really give it full, uh, it's full due, but Father, may I, may I explain it in a way that'll, that'll unite us, that will help us and encourage us and inspire us to, to be more like Christ because you've given us the freedom to do so. Lord, I pray that in our freedom, we will enjoy, we will proclaim the freedom that is available in Jesus Christ. Lord, there's not a political party in the world that can give us freedom from sin, but you have. And we are so thankful. And there's so many out there who, the very ones who are shouting freedom don't recognize that they are slaves to sin. That they need something more than the Bill of Rights. They need something more than political freedom. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may it go out and may it be proclaimed, Lord. And may we be a lighthouse. May we be an announcer, Lord, of your salvation, and may this text give us the strength and the courage to do so, Lord. Move us aside, move me aside, so that your spirit may speak to your people this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you already know, we're looking at Galatians 5 once again. And as I told you, this section of Galatians is uh, much more practical, much more uh, instructional. Paul is taking great pains to tell us who we are in Christ. Now he's going to take great pains to tell us what our responsibilities are in Christ. And uh, we saw the last couple of weeks that discernment really it begins with that because uh, you need to know that the things you are called to are actually from the Lord. And so you don't want to be called to things that are, that are of something else and you don't want to be slaves to something else. And so discernment is going to be a big part of that. But now we're gonna ask the question about our freedom this morning. He has shown us that salvation is complete in Christ. In fact, I uh, uh, some of you may not know, but yesterday was actually uh, Reformation Day. It was the, it was the uh, anniversary of, of the Reformation, the nailing of the 95 Theses. And I took a picture, I'm trying to look it up, Uh, some of you, if you're on my Facebook, you may have seen this and I guess I, I don't know where I took the picture because it's not showing up in my photo album. So, um, this is what happens when you don't plan ahead. But anyway, uh, here's what it says. It says, we are a Protestant. We are born out of protest. And what are we protesting? We stand on scripture alone, not man's wisdom. We stand by faith alone, nothing we earn. We stand by grace alone, nothing we accomplish. We stand in Christ alone, no other mediator. We stand for God's glory alone, not our praise. And I think that is a wonderful summary of who we are in Christ and what that day represents. And Paul's argued crystal clear that the gospel is by grace alone, <coughs> excuse me, through faith alone alone. He has shown us that salvation is complete in Christ. There's nothing to add. There's nothing to maintain. Uh, it is in Christ alone. But this can lead to a concern, can't it? And it's a concern. Maybe maybe you've heard this before. I know I certainly have. And that is this. If salvation is by Christ alone, by faith alone, and if God is the one who keeps us saved and not ourselves then is that not an excuse for moral laxity? Is that not a license to sin? Cannot people just live however they want to and God just takes them on up to heaven anyway? Is that not what our doctrine encourages? How many of you guys have heard that concern before? Maybe you've had that concern before. If you're kept by God, then you can sin however much you want and you know you're safe. Right. Well, two things. Number one, I want you to understand that Paul received the same accusation. In fact, if you look uh, just very quickly in Romans chapter three, in verse eight, he he mentions that he says, uh, "And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil so that good may come." Paul received that same accusation also. And then he addresses it in Romans chapter six, verse one. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he answers it, may it never be, or certainly not. Or if you're using the old King James, God forbid. So Paul received that same accusation. Brothers and sisters, if we're receiving the same accusations that Paul got, then we're in pretty good territory, if you ask me. We're in a pretty good camp, okay? But beyond that, there's a second thing that I want you I want you to understand, and this can be our fault. Some of it may actually be coming from us because in an effort to provide assurance to new believers, sometimes we say things that are not very helpful. I was at a camp one year and and uh, a young man had given his life to Christ. He had professed Christ and he came down and the evangelist was talking to him. He says, now, well, you know now that you're saved, right, brother? Yes, I'm saved. And you know now that from now on at this point, it does not matter how you live because you're saved in Christ. And I thought, wait a minute, that's not true. That is not true, beloved. It does matter how We live. Yes, we are secure in Christ. It takes away our fear, but it does not take away our responsibilities. It does not take away what God has commanded us to. The apostles nor the scriptures give assurance in this way. In fact, if anything, it says, examine yourself. It says that you are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Bible does not shy away from that kind of language. And so this is not what Paul told his converts. Instead, we see the instruction that he gives us here, that yes, you are called to freedom, but do not, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your salvation as an excuse to sin. Don't use the, don't, don't take the blood of Jesus Christ and trample on it, gallivanting in your flesh. Don't do that. Don't do that. Paul has been confronting legalism, but there's an opposite danger that is just as deadly, and that is license. License. That is the idea that we can live however we want to now. We can do whatever we want. There is no inhibitions whatsoever because no matter what we do, God is gonna forgive us and take us to heaven. Beloved, if you have that mentality, then there's a good chance that your heart has not been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so just as dangerous, license, perversion, using Christ as an excuse to sin. Now, Paul is going to confront that. And in the main command of the passage in verse 10, he says, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That term opportunity for for you veterans out there, that term opportunity is a military term and it refers to a base of operations or a beachhead, or maybe a a staging area, if you will. In other words, don't use your salvation as an excuse to sin. In fact, I like how the NIV translates this passage. It says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Unfortunately, there are so many Christians that have this mentality. They use our freedom to remove any hindrances to to enjoying whatever sin that that they may desire. And the truth is, those who live that way, touting their freedom, are really not free at all. They're a slave to their own desires. They choose sin in order to, in order to serve them and, and fulfill some desire of their heart. But sooner or later, that sin betrays you and it's no longer serving you. You are serving it. And that's all you can think about. That's all you live for. It controls you. It fills you. It, it, it. You don't feel as if you are fulfilled without it. And you must have more and more and more. And the law of diminishing returns sets in. And so you've got to do it more and do it more and do it more. You say, Randy, you sound like you're describing addiction. Yes, I am. Because if we're not careful, there is no sin in the world that we cannot become an addict to whether it be pride, whether it be flesh, whether it be drugs, whether it be alcohol, whether it be, whether it be uh, physical relations, whether it, whatever it is, there is nothing that we cannot become addicted to in our sin nature, in our, in our residual sin. And so, ultimately, our flesh is all about us. And so Paul says, don't use use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead, in love, serve one another. How do you know you're not thinking about yourself? Simple. You serve the other person. You serve others. That's how you know. The true test of whether or not we're crucifying our flesh is whether or not we're willing to serve others and how willing we are so why should we do this? Well, Paul gives us very quickly three reasons. Isn't it amazing how the whole Bible can be divided up into threes? It's just a, astounding how that happens. But anyway, we preachers are good at finding three points in the scriptures no matter where we are. But anyway, so uh, and they always start with the same letter too. It's just amazing how God designed that. And so, uh, so why do we do this? He gives us three reasons. It's because of our calling, because of our commandment, and because of our caution. We must use our freedom rightly. The freedom we have in Christ, we must use it rightly for these three reasons. So number one, I gotta be quick, our calling. So look at the first reason, our calling, verse 13. He says, you were called to freedom. You're called to freedom. He exhorted them in one. He said, brothers, you are called to freedom. Do not, do not submit to the yoke of slavery again. He warns them not to submit back to slavery of legalism in verse 1. But now he's going to say again, you are called to freedom. Here there is another ditch that is just as enslaving. And he says, you are called to freedom. This Your calling is so that you will no longer be a slave to your sin and whatever form it. takes, whether it's legalism or license. You're called to be above. You're called to win victory over your sin. This is the battle that Christ won for you. You're called to freedom. This calling that he's talking about is referring to our salvation. It It is the divine call, if you will. It's the nature of salvation is to be free. You say, where do you get that? Well, a couple of places. Number one, we're free in Christ. And I want you to turn to John chapter eight. John chapter eight and verse uh, verse 31. I'm not gonna read the whole passage for lack of time, but Jesus is talking to uh, Jews who had given a kind of, Uh, kind of false belief, if you will, a surface belief, unbelieving belief is what we referred to it in our New Testament class when we were looking at this. This is one of the themes of John. He says, if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, the religious leaders responded much like a lot of people in, in the West today, and especially in America, a lot of people would respond. We aren't slaves to anyone, What are you talking about? You're gonna make us free. We're not slaves, we're free. We've never been enslaved to anybody. We've never been slaves. What are you talking about? And so Jesus explains to them in verse 34, he says, truly, truly, I say to you that if anyone commits sin, he is a slave to sin. See, there is a deeper slavery there, deeper than any political, deeper than any cultural slavery debtor slavery, whatever form it takes, there's a deeper slavery. And that is our flesh to sin. We are slaves to sin. And look what he says in verse 36. He says, if the son makes you free, then you are free indeed. You're free from the greatest enslaving force that has ever hit the human race that every single person that's ever been born has been enslaved to. If the sun sets you free, then you are truly free from your sin. You're free from the penalty of it. You're free from the power of it. And one day, hallelujah, when Jesus returns, we'll be free from the very presence of it. We are free. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Our slavery is not to a political entity, any government, or to any master. Our, our freedom, our, excuse me, our slavery is to sin. And the freedom that Christ gives in the gospel is not the freedom to sin as much as we want. It is the freedom not to. It's the freedom not to sin. It's the freedom to overcome our sins. It's the freedom to not have that sinful reaction, to not go to that sinful dependence, to not be engaged in those sinful activities anymore, no matter how much you may love them. But that's not all. Our freedom comes in Christ. But if you look in 2 Corinthians, our freedom also comes in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And again, I won't read the whole passage, but in verses 12 through 18, Paul is contrasting the ministry of the law with the ministry of the gospel. He calls it the ministry of condemnation versus the ministry of reconciliation. And Paul's contrasting Moses with Christ. You see in the law, when Moses had approached God, when he came out, he had to wear a veil to cover his face because even the residue of God's glory, even the reflection of God's glory on Moses's face made it so. that the people could not look at the glory of God. They could not even look at the face of Moses and he had to wear a veil to cover it up. And look at verse 16 and 17. He says, excuse me, verse 15, he says, but to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And then look what he says in verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There is freedom. Free to do what? Verse 18. But we all with unveiled face are doing what? We are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. You see, God does not just free us to not sin, but he also frees us to behold him to worship him, to approach him, to love him. The very songs we sang this morning, we will glorify. Come, uh, Christians, join to sing. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. The reason we have freedom to do all that is because of the freedom we have in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, you do not have that freedom that's why I'm not a big fan of worship services that are specifically designed to cater to the lost. They're called seeker-sensitive or seeker-driven services today. I don't, I don't like those because, because it, it seems like a fool's errand to design a worship service for someone who by definition cannot worship. And so, and so, no, it, it is Christians who have the freedom to worship. It is Christians who have the freedom not to sin. It is Christians, those who are in Christ, who have the freedom not only to say no to sin, but to say yes to God. That's the freedom we have. And why is that freedom so important? Well, think about this. Why, why do you sin? Why do I sin? Why do you sin? Even, even in Christ, why do we still sin? Because we love to. Because we love it. And you see, look at the rest of verse 18. What happens the more we behold the glory of God in the scriptures and worship? What happens the more we do that? The more we are being transformed into the same image, glory to glory, it's a process, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You see, the only way to conquer love is is to introduce a greater love. The only way to overcome love of sin is to love something greater. The only way to destroy an idol is to replace it with the true God. And that's what we have the freedom to do in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? Beloved, if you don't remember anything else today, please remember this. You don't have to sin. You don't have to. Will you? Probably. But you don't have to. You have a choice. No matter the circumstances, you have a choice. So because of our calling, number two, because of the command, and I'm going to move these other two very quickly because of the command. Look what he says in verse 14. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is a little surprising because has not Paul just spent the entire book telling us we're free from the law? And yet now he's telling us this is the way you fulfill the law. Uh, Paul, um, uh, what's going on here, buddy? Uh, Are you becoming forgetful? I mean, uh, you've just spent like like four chapters inviscerating the law. And now you're telling us, oh yeah, by the way, here's how you fulfill it. Well, again, we have to understand a couple of things here. He's talking about fulfilling the law, specifically Leviticus 19. In fact, if you have a ribbon in your Bible, you might wanna put it there because we're gonna come back to it. But Leviticus 19.18 is what he's fulfilling. And, and many of you immediately, when you heard Paul say this, you probably thought of who, who basically said the exact same thing. Jesus said the exact same thing. What is the greatest command? Love your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Second one is likened to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Summarizes the entire law in these two commands. You can easily see this arrangement in the 10 commandments. Uh, Commands one through four is all about loving God and worshiping God alone. Uh, Commands five through 10 are all about loving neighbor and loving neighbor as yourself. But understand that the issue is that the law is not null and void when you become a Christian. It still has a place. It still has a use. In Galatians chapter 3, for the unbeliever, the purpose of the law is to draw us to Christ, is to bring us into condemnation to where we recognize our condemnation. So that way, we start looking for a way out. And of course, that way out is Christ himself you start recognizing your sin and what it really does to you, grace starts looking really good. And so, and so the purpose of the law for the non-believer is to draw us to Christ. But the purpose of the law in the believer, on the other hand, see, understand the law reveals God's holiness. It reveals his righteousness. It reveals his divine standards. These things don't change. The principles of the law do not change. But for the believer, even though the commands are not filled in the same way, that is to say to the letter, on the other hand, the principles are fulfilled through a genuine heart that has been changed by the gospel. Love for God and love of neighbor. And there's a lot more I I really wanna say about this, but for lack of time, I can't. But the New Testament affirms this principle, beloved, For the believer, the law is no longer a hammer that is above our head, ready to crush us. Rather, it is a loving guide to help us serve God. It's the same relationship that David had to the law. And you read the Psalms, how he talks about how I love your law. Your law is life to me. And, and all these things he says, Psalm 119, we're not, we don't know who wrote it, but 175 verses that every one of them are devoted to the goodness of the law. The law is good and it is good in the life of the believer. You see, David was saved by faith in God's promise, just like we are today. But now his relationship to the law changed. It was no longer crushing above his head. It was now a footstool for which to guide him to the holiness of God. It's not condemning anymore. It is helping. And now in Christ, we have a new heart. We have a new freedom. We have a new life to follow. Let me me read you this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, what is God's law now? It is not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod in terror over Christians and say, if you sin, you must be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. We are not under the law, but under grace. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us nor the spirit which actuates us. The law is good and excellent if it is kept in its place. That's from Charles Spurgeon, unquote. And so the law is what we walk on. The law is, is like the train tracks, but the gospel is the engine. The gospel is the engine that makes us go, but the law is the tracks that guides us to holiness. And in love, in love it is fulfilled. The principles of the law, not, not the letter of the law necessarily. And there's a lot of parts of the law that we don't fulfill anymore. Like for example, most of us are wearing clothes made of two kinds of material today. Okay, so we don't, so we're not following that law, right? But on the other hand, we're also not bringing pagan practices into our worship either. So see, we're, we're fulfilling the spirit of the law. We're not practicing religious syncretism, right? We're not, we're not bringing pagan practices to help us worship God, right? And so we're not following the law to the letter, no. We're not under that anymore. But on the other hand, we are fulfilling the principles. Why? Because we love God. And we wanna worship him the way he wants to be worshiped, the way he tells us to worship in his word. So we have the command. And then finally... We have the caution. We have the caution. A lot more I want to say about the command, but let me finish up with this. In verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. You know, I'm not really sure what prompted this verse. Maybe the legalists were accusing the faithful of being frauds, or more than likely they were stirring up trouble. We kind of see that in Acts chapter 15, verse two. Legalists tend to do that. But Paul warns that if you do this, if you use your salvation as a means for the flesh, if you are biting and devouring one another, that is what using your salvation for the flesh looks like. Biting and devouring. You know, the image here is that of two wild animals that are just ferociously going after each other. Two wild animals, a a dog-eat-dog mentality. We have three dogs in our house. I never thought I'd come to the day where I would say that. But kids do strange things to you. (laughs) So does a wife, but anyway. So um, they usually get along great until we bring a rawhide home. It, It was amazing. The other day we brought, we bring home three rawhides, right? They're exactly the same. Same colors, same package. We open the package, three identical raw hides. We give each one of our dogs a rawhide. And you know what they did? They started fighting each other because Nugget wanted Toby's rawhide and Toby wanted Bella's rawhide. And Bella, poor thing, she's just small. So, you know, she just wanted whatever she could get. And it was just a dog eat dog. There's a just... like that, right? The opposite of love. And Paul says, if you, you, if you live this way, using ferocious means to get what you want, then beware. Take care. In other words, deal with this. See to this that you are not consumed by one another. That word consumed is very violent, it's talking about being devoured, it's talking about being torn to pieces. If you're living by the flesh, this is what's going to happen. What does he mean by biting and devouring one another? I don't think we have to guess. Look in Leviticus chapter 19. And just very quickly, he, he gives us a clue what he means by this by pointing us to Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, we have several examples of what he's talking about, several examples from God himself. For example, in verse 11, it says... Do not steal, deal falsely, or lie to one another. In verse 12, it talks about swearing falsely. In verse 13, it talks about oppressing your neighbor, withholding fair payment from them. In verse 14, it talks about cursing and and mistreating those who are less fortunate than us. In verse 15, it talks about showing partiality, not treating others fairly. Loving others as we love ourselves. Verse 16, it talks about slandering. We have another word for that in the church. It's called gossip. Acting against their life or livelihood. In verse 17, do not hate them. And finally, in verse 18, taking revenge or holding a grudge. In other words, refusing to forgive. All of these things are biting and devouring one another. And once these things start in a church, beloved, the church will be hopelessly fractured, lifeless, and an empty shell. It'll be dead. It'll fall apart. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to sin. Don't use your freedom as an excuse, as an opportunity for the flesh. Christ did not set us free to enjoy our sin. He set us free from our sin. He set us free so that not only we will resist these things, but when they happen, we will overcome them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The worst thing about it all is that when this happens, the testimony of Christ is reproached. It is brought upon shame. He set us free so that we don't bring shame upon his name. He set us free to know and love him. The only cure for misplaced love is a greater love, is love of a greater one, love that will sustain you. Love that will leave you so fulfilled. Love that will bring you such joy that you have the freedom to deny yourself, crucify yourself, and follow him. That's the freedom we have in Christ. And that's the freedom he gives us in the gospel.